Welcome back, everyone, to the fifth episode of Immunology and Beyond. Today, we're extremely excited to welcome Dr. Aaron J. Banerjee, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Karen Mossman's lab here at McMaster University. Dr. Banerjee completed his PhD at the University of Saskatchewan with a focus on the innate antiviral responses to coronaviruses in bats and is now a leading scientist for research into SARS-CoV-2 in Canada. We're very excited to have him on the show today as he tells us what it was like to isolate the virus responsible for COVID-19, as well as insightful advice for how to make the most of graduate studies and beyond. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Aaron J. Banerjee. Well, first off, thanks, Dom, Eddie, and Anna. Thanks for having me on your show. And I think this is a great initiative, by the way. I was wondering if you'd be able to share with us a little bit more about where you started in your research career, starting from the beginning of where you did your bachelor's in the University of Mumbai and kind of how you got to where you are today. So I started my undergrad in at the University of Mumbai, St. Xavier's College in, in Bombay. It used to be Bombay. <laughs> it's, it's Mumbai now. So I, I did a double majors and honors in microbiology and biochemistry. I quickly realized I didn't quite like biochemistry. There's a book called Leninger's Biochemistry. And that used to be my dumbbell. I used to work out with that book because it's literally that heavy. And uh, I, I couldn't memorize all the pathways. So I focused on microbiology. My, my family also has a lot of microbiologists. Yeah, so did my bachelor's in uh, micro and biochem. I moved on to do a master's in virology. So I started at the National Institute of Virology in Pune, India. Did my master's thesis in Saskatchewan and at the University of Saskatchewan. So while I was doing my master's thesis... I was selected as a scholar to go travel to Germany and look at some of the German labs. So I was in Berlin visiting as a scientist. So I did that for a few weeks, came back to complete my master's thesis, and then I traveled to Sydney, Australia at the University of Sydney. Did some more training on coronaviruses and epidemiology, and then I came back to Saskatchewan and, and did my PhD. So that sounds like quite the diverse education. If you look at it, you went to Berlin, you were in Saskatchewan, you started in Mumbai, and then you even went to Sydney. And I was wondering if you can talk a little more about what kind of are the advantages that you found from completing, I guess, your education in so many different countries, and what are any disadvantages, if any, that you that you could tell? Let's let's start with the disadvantages, I think, because I have very few of those. Honestly, I have none. I'm, 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 I had to think hard about this question. So I think one of the biggest disadvantages of moving around is every time you move you jump off and you move to a new country you you essentially lose that core group of friends you know when you're when you're a new immigrant in a country for me like in canada i rely on friends that i have but every time you pack your bags and you move you lose that close support system of friends so that's always challenging but if you're an extrovert that helps and i'm somewhere in that middle of the spectrum of being an introvert and an extrovert so i come across as an extrovert but i'm really an introvert i have to push myself to go out meet people and do things which, which I thought was very challenging when I kept bouncing around these different countries. And advantages that are numerous, you know, every time I traveled, the culture opened me to a lot of different things. You know, growing up in India, a lot of things were very challenging when I first moved. So a lot of things have changed. When I was in Sydney, I thought everything was weird and funny. I was in Berlin, I thought a lot of things were different. But eventually, I think, you know, people are nice everywhere. Wherever you go, you'd find love. And in terms of scientific training, the more diversity you have, the better it is for you. In terms of research culture and all these different continents, did you find a difference? Did you find that some continent was maybe a little more demanding in terms of the work they expect from researchers? Or did you find there was more collaboration? Like, did you find there was a difference? You know, I think it, this, is, this is a personality level question. You can have researchers that are laid back. You can have research groups that are laid back in Canada, in the States, in Germany, or in Australia. So, you know, something I learned in Germany was 
punctuality. They were very punctual and everything started on time. Everything ended at time and 4.30, everybody would be out. So there isn't this this whole culture in academia that you got to spend 16 hours or 12 hours in the lab. You know, growing up in India, I always thought you had to put in the hours behind your science. That's not true. You know, somebody could be efficient in six hours and I could be drinking coffee for six hours and really working for two hours in the lab. So I think I think Germany was at least at the institute, at the Max Planck Institute, they had a system and everybody kind of did their own thing. You know, like things started on time, things ended on time and people partied like crazy. It's not like the only thing they did was science. And uh, Australia was different. I thought Australia was a late, um, a more of a laid back uh, system of doing science. I could show up at 11 in the morning, go have a beer for lunch and then just have a good time. That could also just be me because I was only there for a short while doing an externship. And and again, in Canada, what I've seen is you define your own limits. That sounds really helpful. I, I feel like a lot of researchers who are starting their research career are trying to see if maybe going abroad or just getting experience somewhere else would be helpful. And I think this will definitely shine a light into some of that. Even the way you train, you know, training is very different. Even the, the academic model is very different. So in Canada, you would have a PI and a PI. PI would have postdocs and grad students and undergrads. But in Australia, a PI, a, a, like a senior PI would have assistant professors working for him or her. So you would have this uh, this person who's a big boss, then you'd have junior PIs, and the junior PIs would have their own sections of the research lab. So, you know, when you travel, you get to see these academic models and you understand the advantages and disadvantages of having them. Is there any other models than the one that you described in Australia, or are they mostly just the ones that we found here in Canada and the one you, you just described? So in North America, the model is very generic. You have a PI, the PI has a lab, and the PI uh, recruits postdoc students and other trainees. But the, at the University of Sydney, especially at the Infectious Disease Institute, that was the model that was more prevalent. Seeing that a lot of students at time, they have this question where they they know they're very passionate about science and they know they want to continue with it, but they're not quite sure in which direction they want to go. Sometimes they have to face this direction of industry or academia. Seeing as you've continued in academia, I kind of wanted to know what were the choices that you had to make in order to continue in academia and what were the exciting things that you wanted to do in order to continue in academia? You know, um, Eddie, there are two things I really enjoy. One is teaching, you know, and I knew that if I was in industry, I wouldn't be able to teach and inspire the next set of trainees. You might get on a MyTax postdoc, you might get on an industry training, but but it's not quite the same. I want to have an impact on a wider range of undergraduate students. And I'm mostly interested in undergraduate students is because they come in with a lot of curiosity. And when they join a lab, it's up to us to maintain that curiosity. You know, when a student walks out of the lab and, and the student's unhappy, it reflects badly on the person that's training that student. Because a student joined your lab in the first place because the person likes your science. Now the student's walking out of your lab because the person no longer likes your science. So what went wrong? The other thing I like about um, academia is the opportunity to get paid for your hobby. There are very few hobbies that will pay your salary. In, in academia, you can, if you're a curious personality, every day is a different day. You wake up with a question and you get paid to test that question. I think that's a perfect life for me anyways. But having said that, it doesn't mean that industry is no good. If you believe in translational science, I have lots of colleagues who really want to make an impact and they want to translate the science. In academia, that doesn't happen 100% of the time. Some of us are interested in fundamental questions like, why is the sky blue? It's not going to make an impact on your health. But humans as a species, I think we're extremely curious and we need to fund that curiosity. Leaving your PhD and then going into being a postdoc where I believe your role and your duties are more independent, how has that changed and what are things that you like about it? What are things maybe that you dislike about it? If I can only speak for myself and then uh, every postdoc will have a different story. And that's again the beauty of academia is none of our stories the same. You have a different story and I'll have a different story. So I came to McMaster with my own research program. 
So that put a lot of pressure on me to get my own funding. So before I even approached Dr. Mossman for a postdoc, the first thing she told me was, I don't have dedicated funding for this. If you can find funding for the project, if you can find funding for your salary, then we will talk. So I spent the last two years of my PhD trying to raise funds and write fellowship applications for myself. You know, nobody trains you as a grad student to write fellowship applications. You know, you could go take workshops and do all of that. But the day you graduate, this hits you very hard. You know, you need to raise funds. And fundraising is not a part of a training when you're getting your PhDs. In fact, when you become a PI, every skill that you need, you're not trained on any of those as a scientist. So I think for me, the biggest transition was not to develop an independent program because I was coming with my research program, but to raise money to fund that research program. So that was, I think, the single most um, challenge for me as a postdoc. And in terms of the things that I guess that you like about being a postdoc as opposed to being a PhD or, or a master's student, what would those be? I think the good thing about being a postdoc is the independence, especially with my supervisor once Dr. Mossman was always senior admin at Mac. She's now the vice president of research at Mac. So the good thing for me is she doesn't have the time to micromanage it. And that's, that's allowed me to write all the research funding. That's allowed me to manage all the funding. In fact, I've been recruiting fellow postdocs into our lab. So I think that's, if you want to be a PI, this is a great great mock run for me with the safety net of a successful supervisor, Dr. Mossman, who's got on the funding. So if I make a mistake, I'm not going to lose my funding. I can take the risks and I can be successful as a postdoc. And that's part of the reason why I quickly jumped onto COVID-19 as well. I think we've heard this many times from PIs. I, I think with Dr. Vilgras, we heard the same thing, where when you're in academia as a master's student or as a trainee, there, there's a lot of skills that you learn, but when you quickly start a faculty position, all those skills, there's not many that are transferable. You just have to learn a complete new skill set. It's good to know that that postdoc kind of acts as a middle ground where you have that support from a faculty member to kind of get you accustomed to those, those roles. I mean, it's great to be able to pipette five microliters, but the reality is that pipetting skill is not going to get you all the money you need for your science. If you are interested in, in even industry, as you go up the ranks, you're going to start fundraising. You need to speak to your clients. You need to speak to investors, right? So if you see yourself going in that direction, I would start building on those skill sets. You know, ask your PI to let you write that grant. Write the most horrible draft you can, but do it at the stage of a grad student and not like a last year postdoc. Certainly no PI would ever tell you that we don't need more money. If you come up with an idea and you tell your PI, tell your boss that, hey, listen, I have this idea. I'll write the first draft of the proposal. You know, take that initiative. And I'm, I'm, any PI would want a trainee that's self-driven, motivated, and wants to uh, put together a grant. And that yeah. gives practice for your fellowships as well, by the way. That, that whole thing could become a fellowship application for yourself. At one point, you mentioned a little bit about when you were talking about why you chose academia, you clearly demonstrated that you're very passionate about teaching. And we kind of want to go into a little bit of the external projects that you're working on aside from just research base. Uh, and I'm going to pass it over to Dominique, who's going to ask you some of those questions. So we can learn more about that. Yeah. So you mentioned some of your experiences in academia, but also Along with what Eddie was saying about teaching, can you expand a bit about your involvement with SAN or Science and Technology Awareness Network? You know, I'll take a few steps back. And as a PhD student, I was always interested in science communication. So what I would do is I would go to these elementary schools and talk to kids about science. It's always difficult to get that first seminar. 
But once the teachers like you, that person is going to go talk to his or her colleagues and you keep getting invited, you know, that, hey, this person spoke about viruses and maybe we can have him over for like a session on viruses. And I enjoyed those sessions. Oh, my God. Like elementary school kids had some of the toughest questions for me. They had some excellent questions on. Uh, so why does why do you go out and why does herpes virus cause blisters? You know, they have this concept about UV reactivating viruses. They just don't know how it happens. But they'll ask you all of these very curious questions not textbook questions, just curious mind questions. And that's what I really enjoyed with elementary school kids. And then when I stepped out of the elementary school, I wanted to do something else. I took up a concept called One Health. So what I started doing was I started reaching out to organizations that had projects or, or any kind of initiative on One Health. And one organization I found was the One Health Commission that's based in the States. So as a PhD student, uh, we got voted into the first student chapter of the One Health Commission. And I was elected as the global secretary general of the One Health Commission, uh, the student chapter of it. And then I graduated the next year. <laughs> so the problem is the moment I graduated, I, I was no longer a student. So I lost the status of being a student. So you couldn't be on the student committee. And then we moved to Ontario. So I was physically uh, separated from what I was doing. So when I was in Ontario, I started looking for One Health organizations. But anyway, I found local One Health groups. So I was doing regional One Health, but I missed I miss the international impact that I had as, as part of the One Health Commission. Or somebody sent me an email about Stan. I looked at the board of directors. I'm like, oh, these are very successful people. I'm never going to make the cut. But I applied anyways. I ran the platform that you guys are experienced. Great. But you're missing the youth on your committee. What I, what I promised to do was connect all the universities across Canada, take all the student science awareness networks and put them on this national uh, organization. So, yeah, and I, I interviewed and they liked me. So I joined Stan, I guess. So I'm continuing my science communication through Stan. So we do a lot of stuff to empower uh, women in Stan. Yeah, so we do a lot of good initiatives across Canada through STAN, and uh, I'm learning from some of the best people in the field. For our listeners, can you describe a little bit about what One Health is? So One Health is this concept that the health of animals, plants, and humans is super interconnected. It's almost like the butterfly effect. You know, you, you, you damage the environment, you're, you inadvertently will damage wildlife and humans. So there's a butterfly effect of doing anything upstream in the environment, and it trickles down to affect the health of humans. That really is One Health. It's a really important initiative just because as grad students, a lot of emphasis isn't really placed on enhancing your um, science communication skills. So with that in mind, why do you think that science communication is so important or that you've involved yourself in science communication for so long? Well, if you ask ourselves this question, why are you doing science? I ask myself this every time. Why am I doing this science? And I'm doing the science. So if, if I find out why the sky is blue, I want you, I want Eddie, I want Anna, I want my wife, I want my grandfather to know why the sky is blue. You know, and that's where science communication comes in. You can write all your fancy stuff, you know, fancy manuscripts, but if nobody reads it, even worse, people read it and don't understand it. <laughs> so what's the point of spending all those hours, spending your curiosity trying to address this fundamental question you have? If you cannot explain it to anybody, I did science communication because I, I wanted people to understand my science. I do it because I want people to know why it's important to study bats. Why should you study infectious diseases? And the more people know, then I'll, that's my job done, I guess. So you also just started um, another one called gradschooling.com. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? So grad schooling was rather ambitious and we were trying to do a lot of things before COVID-19 happened. And I'll, I'll give you a snapshot of what we were thinking. So my buddy Talina is a population health scientist. So, you know, Talina and I were very good friends and we both sat on different boards and committees at the University of Saskatchewan. So every evening at the graduate house, Talina and I would sit and we would grab a beer and we would discuss all the problems. 
that we have as a student, right? So we decided what can what can what could he and I as two individuals do to fix this or address this problem? You know, we couldn't fix it as two individuals at the university. But what we decided we could do was give give graduate students a pedestal or a platform where students could come out and share their stories, you know. So we started doing that. And then eventually we started realizing that scholarships were challenging. Getting them is always challenging. Finding them were challenging. So we couldn't find a platform to even find all the scholarships, institutional scholarships. If I wanted to move to UBC, what funding would I have access to? If I wanted to go to Calgary, what funding would I have access to? So we so we now have a page on grad schooling where you can find all the scholarships institutional, federal, and all of them that's been listed out. And eventually we wanted to, you know, we wanted to hire a board of directors. We wanted to make this a nonprofit and have people advise students, you know, international students, domestic students, come to Canada, study in Canada, and this is what you get in Canada and next steps. With that, we can move into a bit of COVID research questions. So my first question really is, what drew you into research into infectious diseases and immunology? So my grandpa is a pathologist. He trained in the UK and he was a he was a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists. And so I every time I would visit my grandpa, I would sit on his lap and look down his scope. So he had this very fancy German microscope, but he took extreme extreme pride in that microscope. And uh, he's an oncologist now. So what he did was he would manually scan uh, slides with sections of tumors on them, and he would, and his diagnosis would be if they were uh, malignant or not. So he would identify the type of cancer or the type of tumor the, the patient had. So when I started, when I was growing up, I always wanted to have my own microscope. In fact, my grandpa promised me that he'd give me his microscope if I did the PhD. Anything closely associated with with a microscope. I still don't have the microscope, by the way. Yes, he's, he's, he's still got the microscope. I wanted to be around the microscope. I didn't necessarily know I would be a microbiologist or a virologist as a kid. And I think eventually I, I just got attracted to microbes. That, uh, you know, coming from an Indian family, there was enormous pressure on me to become a physician because my mom's family is full of physicians. So they did put me into this training system where besides your schooling, you would start, you study for all your uh, you know exams from med school. So a lot like MCAT. So I was constantly studying for it. And the more I studied, the more I disliked it. I didn't want to be a physician. And then I wanted to have the microscope and I didn't want to be a physician. So I was like, hmm, maybe bacteria. Maybe I should study bacteria. And that's that's, that's kind of how I landed in this whole bacteriology and, and biochemistry program. And the more I studied bacteria, I realized I wanted to go smaller, you know. So I went smaller into into, into viruses and then eventually I went to DNA and, and small molecules. So my dad keeps telling me that your entire life, you've studied stuff that you can't see. So you've only gone smaller from, from studying bacteria to viruses to um, CRISPR knockouts and all that stuff. As you kept getting smaller and smaller and the different things that you were looking at, why did you end up studying the relationship between bats and viruses? And what were the main findings of your PhD? You know, although I don't remember when I, when I started studying microbes, but what I do remember is why I started studying bats. And I think 2014 was a pivotal time in my, in my life. So I was, like I mentioned, during my master's thesis or uh, during my master's program, I was in Berlin. And that's where I met my master's thesis supervisor, who was who eventually went on to become my PhD thesis supervisor as well. So he had a talk on bats. And back then, Canada didn't have an established research program on bats. There were bat evolutionary scientists, but they weren't bat infectious disease scientists or even bat comparative immunologists. So Vikram Misra, my, my former PhD supervisor, he had a he had a talk on bats and Ebola virus. 
So when I was in Berlin, the first time I was in Berlin was the summer of 2013. And the West African Ebola outbreak was just happening, right? So he had this giant slideshow at the Max Planck Institute where he talked about bats and you know, how bats are reservoirs for all of these uh, wicked, nasty, high pathogenic viruses. So that's the way he did his talk really attracted me to that science. And that's something I take with me even today. You know, the speaker can have a huge impact on whether that science is cool or not. And Vikram had this amazing way of talking about, you know, just making bats sound cool. I never thought about bats my entire life. So I'm sitting there in the audience and I'm listening to this gentleman talk and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I want to study why bats don't die of Ebola, why bats don't die of coronaviruses. So I walked up to him and I'm like, hey, Vikram, listen, I'd like to study bats. And he said, great. What do you want to study in bats? I said, I don't know. I want to study bats because they're so cool. And he said, okay, listen, go think about this. Take some time, think about it, and send me an email and tell me what you want to study about bats. So I sent him this giant proposal, you know. And I remember I put in so much time. I, when I arrived in Canada, Vikram was like, great, you want to study bats. But to do virology, you need cell lines. There are no bat cell lines. So six years ago, that's where I started. I started making bat cell lines. But, uh, but that's where, we, where I started is make the tools, make the cell lines, make the reagents. So I spent the last six years doing all of this. And today we can do all these fancy single cell RNA-seq and RNA-seq and everything, which was only made possible because somebody pushed me to make that cell line to begin with. So that's, and, and, and that's a great, great quality to have. So, so Vikram essentially gave me the skills to start studying a mammal with essentially no reagents. I can go make my own reagents and study any mammal I'd like. So I think that 2014 was really a pivotal time in my life. And, and you know, the other thing, Tom, that's just always step out and, and reach out to people that can help you. So halfway through my PhD, I had no intention of studying coronaviruses. I was studying bats because we knew bats were reservoirs for coronaviruses. But I wasn't really working with the coronavirus. I was studying the bat immune response. When I was halfway through my PhD, Daryl Fazerano arrived from NIH and started his lab at Vido Interback in Saskatoon. And he's an expert on Mars coronavirus. So when he arrived, the day I watched his seminar, I was like, man, he's literally across the street. I'm studying bats, I've made the bat cell lines. If only I could train in his high containment lab, take his virus and put them on bat cells. I walked up to him and I said, hey, Daryl, I'd like to do this. He asked me one question, why? Why would I do this? I was like, you don't do anything. You just train me and I'll do this. All I need from you is your training and your virus talk. You know, and I was, petrified talking to Daryl, but I'm glad I did. Because if I hadn't, I wouldn't have coronavirus in my thesis. I would just have, you know, human versus bad antiviral responses. So, so step out of your comfort zone, reach out. The worst thing somebody can tell you is no. That's fine. I think a lot of students can relate to this where you want to pursue something or you kind of have an idea to pursue something, but and you're really scared about the response. But yeah, you're right. The Really the worst thing that someone could say to you is no. That's another thing in, in academia is you deal with some tough personalities. You know, nobody's a bad person. But in Canada, I think most PIs are so generous and nice that we are used to being told, you might want to do this experiment. So if somebody comes and tells you you're wrong, you know, it hurts you. So if you work with people that give you that blunt feedback that you're wrong, you know, you get used to it. And nothing's personal. And that's what I learned from Daryl is attack your science. If you can attack your science and call out science that's not robust. There's a lot of fear in that. But yeah, that's true. Just having someone who's really looking out for your science and really making sure that this is robust and this is rigorous and this is good. So that is someone important to have. And also you mentioned going to speak with him and then also getting into the world of coronaviruses. So 
as we're now in this pandemic, as someone who has studied it extensively, do you remember where you were and how you first felt when you found out that the current pandemic was caused by something that you study? How did you feel? Yeah, I actually do remember where I was. I was the first week of January, I was doing an IID around seminar at Mac, and I was talking about Moore's coronavirus and, and bats and, and how bats are reservoirs. And the last slide of my talk was the snapshot of a story that was coming out of China. And the virus was then called unknown pneumonia outbreak because nobody had identified what the virus was. I just finished a talk on bats and coronaviruses. And I shared with the audience that, you know, this could, this very well might be a coronavirus. I don't want it to be a coronavirus, but we know bats have coronaviruses that can infect human cells in vitro, in, in a lab anyways. So, you know, this unknown pneumonia could be a coronavirus. And then I ended my talk saying, these are all speculations. These are all rumors. So don't take my word for it. And I didn't know back then that this would be a pandemic. I was at McMaster when that happened. <laughs> That's super interesting. The fact that, oh, it could possibly be a coronavirus. So as there, and then you're thrust into this world with the pandemic and then a leader in studying on coronaviruses. So how has your research experience changed your work? And have there been advantages and disadvantages in terms of funding, collaboration, publicity, et cetera? Oh, certainly. I think I think publicity, uh, without a question, I guess, this pandemic has, has focused on all the science that, not just myself, but lots of colleagues who've been doing science in bats, especially in Singapore, China, uh, Germany as well. All of a sudden, your science has become the focus and of, of a lot of citations as well. You know, some of the papers we, that have never been cited now have over 100 citations because people are citing it and reading it. So it's, it's been, it's been, there's been a lot of uh, attention, I suppose, to all the science that we've been doing over the last few years. With that, Anna will go into asking a bit more questions, more about your work with COVID-19. Um, yeah, we just wanted to ask you a little bit more details into the work that you've done in isolating uh, SARS-CoV-2 within Canada and your collaboration with Toronto. Yes, so Dr. Samira Mubarak, I call her Sam. So Sam and I are on the organizing committee of something called INCD and CM, or we call it Inky Dinky, and that stands for uh, Infectious Diseases in Nature that are Communicable to Humans. It's a conference that's focused on zoonotic infections. So viruses, bacteria, parasites, any kind of pathogen that moves from animals to humans. And Samira works with colleagues who've had firsthand experience with SARS-1 when it was in Canada. So Dr. Alison McKeer being one of them at Mount Sinai Hospital that dealt with SARS in 2003. So when Sam and I were discussing this, uh, we considered the possibility that the virus would enter Canada. And we discussed where the virus would most likely enter Canada. So it was Vancouver or Toronto, based on where the flights come in. So I was speaking with Samira, and Samira mentioned that she's got a level 3 facility at U of T, and, and, uh, but she's only got one tech. She didn't have any personnel to work in the level three facility. And then I mentioned, hey, listen, I did my PhD on coronaviruses. I've worked on Mars coronavirus. This is all that I've done. So the least I can do is, is come down and help you isolate these, uh, these viruses if COVID-19 arrived in Canada. Of course, it got a call and unfortunately it did arrive in Canada. So Sam was like, so how quickly can you come down? I said, well, I'll come tomorrow. I packed a bag, I packed a suitcase in my... It wasn't as simple as just driving to U of T and, and entering the level three facility. But there's a huge process behind training and being certified for level three lab. So having trained at Bido Intervac from my PhD, that there were certain advantages. So they knew that I had trained in a CO3 lab and they contacted people at Vido Intervac who thankfully vouched for my, my techniques. 
So we assembled this team of individuals that had extensive CL3 experience. So not just myself, but also everybody on the team had prior high containment lab experience. This was because we, we weren't certain how pathogenic SARS-2 was. The only information we had in end of February and March was uh, it's, it's, it's spreading in China. And, uh, you know, deaths were going up and cases were going up very early days, right? So we didn't want to risk going in with somebody who, who hadn't worked with the high pathogenic virus. So Rob Kozak, Lily Yip, and myself uh, went in and um, the samples came through Sunnybrook. So Rob and uh, so Rob Kozak and, and Samira handled the samples. Lily drove it to uh, Toronto and she gave it to me and she said, Aaron these are your samples. And uh, I remember being extremely nervous, not because I wasn't confident, but because I thought that these were precious samples. I never in my, I couldn't even imagine this would be a pandemic. So I figured there are only three cases in Canada and we'll have three samples to work with, period. I thought but I put enormous pressure on myself. Nobody else put pressure on me. So Karen was like, yeah, just go. Just figure out who's liable if you get infected. Other than that, I'm fine. You can go, you can work. So I joined U of T as a visiting scientist and I, I, I finished, I did a crash course on a training. So U of T Biosafety didn't skip the training. They just fast-tracked everything for us. We spent hours sitting around a board table trying to go through all the training and doing all the visits. So I think together the Biosafety office, the CL3 manager and all the PIs, they, they facilitated our entry into the lab. So once the training was done, we had the samples walked in and we worked with three samples and we isolated the virus from two samples. It was quite fascinating, I think. We were all working on adrenaline at that point in time. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear about how you actually were able to isolate SARS-CoV-2 because, you know, you can read your paper and see these findings, but just knowing a little bit more about what it took to get there is really I'll share a secret with you only for your audience. The whole country doesn't know this. So we named the strain SARS coronavirus 2 slash SB, SB as in Sunnybrook. But we named this virus while we were celebrating over beers that night. And the name really was Samira and Banerjee. So we were like, ah, oh, Samira and Banerjee and Sunnybrook. That makes total sense. Nobody will ever find out. When we are 60 years old, we'll share a beer again and we'll laugh over this. So there is, we, we've, we've put in our name into these virus isolates that uh, about nine universities in Canada are using now. So um, it was it was definitely exciting. Yeah, and it's just amazing how you were able to provide that resource for other labs to continue testing possible vaccines and other antivirals. I want to circle back to uh, how amazing it is to be in academia or even a postdoc or a grad student. You have a question, just go and do it. Nobody will stop a curious personality. It's like entering a classroom that you're not taking. The instructor's not going to throw you out. You sit there and you take that knowledge that you can get. So when I reached out to Samira and Samira said, yes, you can come. All I had to tell Karen was, hey, Karen, please, can I go? And she's like, what are you doing? I said, you know, I want to go and isolate SARS too. And I was just genuinely excited. I wasn't thinking of papers, nothing. I just wanted to work with something that was exciting. So do that. You know, you can do that as a grad student. You can do that as a postdoc. Nobody, like no good scientist would say no unless they know that this is going to distract you and it won't benefit you. Yeah, that's definitely good advice. If you can contribute something, don't be afraid to go out there and seek those opportunities. And so going forward, I know that you did test whether SARS-CoV-2 could infect immune cells. And what other research questions are you guys looking at as of now? So something we've just finished doing is we've looked at full cytokine profile of uh, moderate cases versus severe cases. So we've looked at what kind of an immune response COVID-19 patients would mount. People with, with uh, less severe disease, so people who were in the hospital, but they, they weren't uh, in the ICU. 
versus people who were in the ICU and, and also patients that have died. We've identified antiviral proteins in these patients. We've also identified markers of inflammation in these patients. We've identified how these markers uh, differ between patients based on their disease severity. And not just that. So once we had this clinical observation, we went on to do experimental investigations with the virus that we had isolated. So we've done ex extensive experiments looking at the activation and suppression of immune responses using human uh, airway epithelial cells. So we've, we've used cells that come from humans. We've infected them experimentally in, here at MAC in the high containment lab. And we've looked at activation and suppression of immune responses. Yeah, that's just one of the things. There are lots of collaborative projects we are on, and those aren't my story to share, really. But I can, I can, I can tell you certainly what we are working on. That's really interesting. Identifying the differences between different disease severity cases is going to be very important. You, you, you're correct, Anna. One of the things we've sort of identified is there's lots of protein expression studies that have identified that SARS-2 can block immune responses. And there are papers that have done this, and they do it by overexpressing selected proteins. You know, but what we've gone on to show is a wild type, a bona fide wild type virus cannot efficiently modulate immune responses. So we show quite the opposite. We'll see how the field takes to this, but I think we are one of the few groups that have gone out and done these experiments with wild type viruses. And we do not see a very effective suppression of immune responses. In fact, quite the opposite, we see an activation of immune response. And so I guess moving forward, we want to know, right now you're very deep into COVID-19 research, but where do you see yourself going further into your career? Do you see yourself staying within academia, starting your own lab, or what are your future endeavors? So in a, in a parallel universe, I'm running my own food truck. I love to cook. So, but, in, but in this universe, I, I'll stick around doing studying zoonotic viruses. I think if you look at, if you look at emerging pathogens, 70% of them come from animals, right? And if you look at uh, WHO's list of priority infections, seven out of the 10 infectious viruses come from bats. So there's obviously, there's a, there's, there's, there's a lot of need to study these zoonotic pathogens before they become the next pandemic. And we're living in a pandemic that's, that's been caused by likely a zoonotic pathogen. So uh, I think there hasn't been enough focus on zoonotic viruses, certainly not in Canada. So I'd like to establish myself as a leader in this field and continue studying zoonotic viruses. I think that your extensive um, experience with your bat models is going to be super beneficial to be able to answer these questions. So that's amazing. One thing that I, that I wanted to touch upon is kind of how was this experience of just collaborating with so many different labs like especially when you were trying to isolate the, the virus there were so many moving parts what was one of the experiences that what was one thing that could sum up how that experience was for you as a researcher to have so many people coming together as one to tackle one big issue that at the moment you didn't know was going to be a pandemic but ended up driving a lot of the research in canada in the future you know, uh, Eddie, you raise a very good point, and, and you touch upon this this thing that we often forget. All of us, all of us are doing this because we're interested in this. All of us are doing this because we are curious. All of us are doing this because when you wake up every morning, you have a question in your head. As this hierarchy sets in, PIs, directors, grad students, undergrads, we often forget why we started doing this in the first place. So what this pandemic did is I went out like like a, you know, just a curious person, and I poked and it knocked at the doors of all of these people. And maybe, this is this is complete wild speculation, maybe they realized why they started this in the first place. It was a, a cascading effect, I guess, or, or a domino effect, you know, where, where somebody just comes in with so much energy that, guys, we got to do this. And everybody's like, yes, we, we need to do this. 
And that's what really happened. I think I saw a lot of curiosity and a lot of passion amongst all of these different scientists. This was my first time interacting with a lot of clinical scientists and a lot of physicians. I had never worked with physicians. I'd only worked with basic scientists. But over the last eight months, I've been working with more physicians than I've ever met. You know, so I think getting the physician's perspective that I don't care what controls you have. I want to see an outcome in my patient. I don't care about your, you know, control cells and your mock treatments and this. It's like, give me something that can fix my patient. And then that attitude changes the way you look at basic science. And I also experienced collaborative science, like really collaborative science. And, and it happened so quickly. In six months time, we put so many collaborations going on. You know, I've always been collaborative, but I've never had the chance to be, <laughs> to meet all of these people and be so collaborative so quickly. So I think the pandemic did bring all uh, most Canadian scientists and the GTA anyways, very close. Looking back at your training experience coming from Mumbai uh, to now working to help discover new things of the COVID-19 pandemic, what is one piece of advice that you would say to yourself? I would tell myself, don't be afraid. You know, I've been scared of a lot of things in my life. I'm just scared of a lot of things. You know, I've got so much gray on my head. And I could have avoided some of this gray if I didn't overthink things. You know, every time I submit an application, every time I write a proposal, every time I send an email, sometimes I go back to my sent items and I make sure that the email was written correctly, you know. So if I could stop overstressing myself, I would certainly give myself that advice that, you know, everything works out. Nobody's going to pick on that one typo in your subject line that you forgot. Like I would tell myself not to try to be a perfectionist. There is not, there is no perfection in science. You know, so I, and, I, and I think I'm still learning. I'm still teaching myself that as, as not to get overstressed. Okay, well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your experience. Um, I think we can all learn from everything that you've said today. So thank you so much. Really, really thanks for having me. You could have picked anybody, but thank you. Welcome back, everyone. We would like to, you know, give a huge thanks to Dr. Renergy. We know that it, right now is a very exciting time for him as he's taking a huge lead in SARS-CoV-2 research within Canada. And he came into the podcast and just gave us an inside look into how his research life and experience has changed ever since the pandemic started. We would also like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in today and listening to this episode. We would like to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Immunology and Beyond to stay up to date with podcast news. We have also created an Instagram account for the podcast. Check that out on Instagram to stay up to date with news for the podcast, as well as to see upcoming guests that we're recording with. We would also like to encourage you to follow the McMaster Immunology Research Center Twitter account at Mac Immunology so you can stay up to date with any research that's occurring in the center. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.